Hello everybody, welcome to Won't You Be My Rabbi. I am, as always, Laura Lebo. I've never stopped being Laura Lebo. I am, as always, the host of this podcast. Maybe you're wondering, what is this podcast about? You clicked on it because you saw the word rabbi. Maybe you're a Jew. Maybe you're looking to become a Jew. Maybe you're looking to marry a Jew. Maybe you're looking to divorce a Jew. I know there are plenty of Jews I'd love to divorce. I'm not married to them, but I have a relationship with them. But you can't divorce blood, as they say. This is a podcast where I, the aforementioned Laura Lebo, speak with rabbis of various Jewish denominations to see, is there a religious Jewish denomination that might help me answer some questions that I have about spirituality, about higher power, about humanity, about human relationships, about love, uh, and about divorce. Mainly about divorce. No, I kid. There's nobody I want to divorce. There are plenty of people I want to marry, however. Anyways, the point is, for the past, I would say, two years, I've had this dissatisfaction with the things that I can measure with science and my five senses, I guess is how I would put it. I'm looking for something more. I don't know if there's something more. I I don't know. I feel like there is, but I am dense on the subject. There are plenty of things I know plenty about. Um... Eh, there are like four things uh, I know something about, but religion is not one of them. I certainly have a sense of spirituality. I probably always have, even if I haven't always admitted it. But I'm interested to see if I can learn anything about religion that I could potentially incorporate into my existing spirituality, into my current search for meaning. And that's why I have chosen to speak with five rabbis and religious leaders of the Jewish faith to see if they can help me answer some of my burning questions, some of my piping hot, sizzling questions. If you can't handle the heat, get out of the questions, rabbi. On this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Rabbi Matthew Leibel, who was a conservative rabbi based in Winnipeg. Here's what I can tell you about speaking with Rabbi Matt, as I now call him. I felt at ease talking to Rabbi Matt. Um, I was scared I would feel out of my element because I don't think of myself as a conservative person. Well, neither does Rabbi Matt, uh, I don't think. I think I conflated being politically conservative with being a conservative Jew. But here's the thing, conservative Judaism today is is mushy. Its boundaries are loose. And the people that attend conservative shuls today are not necessarily the conservatives that I grew up with who were often politically conservative. I, of course, in my interview with Rabbi Matt, made sure to wear my most formal graphic tee, uh, my most conservative skort, you know, a little page boy cap uh, for added professionalism. But I got the sense that even if I was dressed less conservatively, um, Rabbi Matt wouldn't have cared. Rabbi Matt is chill, nice, he's progressive. He sort of gave me the sense that even though it has the word conservative in it, Many Jews who attend conservative synagogues may have a lot of, you know, progressive ideals, both religious and political. Ideals like prioritizing the Jewish people over Jewish law and precedent, making sure to be inclusive of LGBTQ plus folks who might attend the synagogue, you know, being allowed to get a Bernie Sanders tattoo on your face. So to be totally frank, I'm not sure I know where conservatism falls on the scale from left to right after talking to just one 
conservative rabbi. But what I do know is that Rabbi Matt does not consider his conservatism to be a big part of his identity as a rabbi or a Jew. Of all the rabbis I spoke to, I would say Rabbi Matt was the rabbi that made me feel the most like, ah, here's a peer, you know? Here's a guy. He's just a guy. A guy who knows God. A smart guy. But just, you know, a guy uh, who puts on his talis one step at a time, just like the rest of us. So what I learned was conservatism is hard to nail down. I learned that if I do join a congregation, it probably won't be a conservative congregation. And I learned that rabbis, they're just like us, but with a lot more stories. Here's Rabbi Matthew Leibel. Hi, Laura. Great to talk to you. Great to talk to you. I do have to, like, so I know that you uh, have done radio before. Yeah. And I do have to say, we were just off mic discussing that uh, it's not good to put on a radio voice, but I do think you have a naturally, you have a a good, bassy radio voice naturally. Yeah, yeah. I thank you. Well, I'm glad for that because I like to talk a lot. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And at least in the other people... I guess it's not a terrible sound. No, I mean, I'm joking around. But when I was a kid, I talked a lot. I had a lot to say. Mm-hmm. And I found that like when I went into radio, because I was a radio host for six years, you know, I studied journalism and then I don't have the typical rabbi path, right? Like I went to the University of King's College in Halifax and I studied journalism and I focused on radio and it just seemed like a really good fit because I loved to talk. And mm. that's not like I like to hear the sound of my own voice, but I'm a, a storyteller. One time I was in a restaurant in Winnipeg where I'm from, right? And Peter Mansbridge was sitting over having uh, dinner with somebody. And I was like, oh, I gotta go talk to him, right? Like I was in the process of applying to, I was maybe 19, I was in the process of applying to journalism school. And I was like, it's Peter Mansbridge, like Journalists Canada, Peter Mansbridge, right? So I went up to the table and I started talking to him and I was just like, I'm applying to journalism school, do you have any advice? And everything was a total blur. But I, the only thing that I remember that he said was that uh, you should go into this business if you like being a storyteller. Like at parties, are you the one telling stories or are you the one listening to stories? I'm the one telling stories. So, Interesting. yeah. And then, but well, yeah. And then, so I guess it came down to uh, a lot of practice, right? When I get, uh, when I get going and I over pitch, well, you probably know this as a comedian, right? Like um, your delivery, uh-huh. sometimes you want to sound regular or, uh-huh. or, or, or strong. And sometimes you intentionally want to, over pitch or under pitch or you know like to make your to make your point yeah for sure you got to play around with the voice it's it's the only instrument i know how to play right um, so i try to make the most of it and, and do you did you what was it like the for you the first time or the first few times when you like heard yourself back isn't that the worst <clears throat> when you're on radio you have yeah. to check at the air check and then you're just like that's not me that's not how i sound in my own head when i'm talking i'm 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 beautiful. I sing like Elton John and I and I have James Earl Jones incarnate like coming out of me and this sounds like a little Jewish boy from Winnipeg. This is terrible, right? So, yeah, the first time you realize you're a, a little Jew, it's it's a it's a tough awakening for sure. I, well, I when I was a kid, my friends and I, my friend had um I guess it was like a recorder and we would put uh tapes in, recording tapes and we did a radio show when we were kids. Um, and it was like, we did everything. We did interviews. We also did the ads and, uh, like years 
later, uh, sadly, my, my friend's father passed away. We hadn't been in touch, but we went to the Shiva and she played us those tapes. And it was the first time I think I heard my voice from when I was a kid. And that was a huge trip because I, I sounded so good as a kid. Like I had a really cool voice as a kid. And I think uh, it's been molded over time through like media peers, you, you know, like, I don't know if I meant to, but I think that my voice is just, I'm a matcher. I tend to match other people's intonation and uh, my voice is very different now than it used to be. When, but when, yes. you hang out, when you hang out with somebody with an accent after like a couple hours, are you speaking with like an affected accent? Like <laughs> <laughs> not in front of them, but absolutely <laughs> privately. Abs- when I've done, when I've traveled in the past and you meet all these, all these international people, which is so much fun. Um, when I get back to the hostel or whoever I'm traveling with, that's it for the night. Um, no, and it's usually like, like uh, I met some Italians on my voyage and it's not like I'm doing a good accent. It's mildly offensive. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it, it's like an earworm. It gets stuck in my head for sure. Yeah. I think that if you're a good storyteller, I always tell those people all the time. And I think it applies to being a rabbi too. Probably a lot of lines of work. When I was getting started as a, t- a talk show host, right? Because I wasn't an FM DJ, you know, you know, good morning, Winnipeg. Now you're listening to the Martha and the Vandellas. Like uh, it was like you had to fill four hours of talk. But the best advice I ever got was that you have to be a better listener than you are a talker. And I think uh-huh. if you're a naturally good listener, you absorb those things like you were just saying uh-huh. and they come out. I'm, I'm always I'm fascinated by what is it? They call it syntax, like the way people structure sentences. One yeah. of the ones... Um, I've been watching this show that has a lot of uh, British people. Uh-huh. One of the things that I love about British people, I find it's not the accent, but the, the way they, they do their sentences, it's so inviting because quite often they'll be making a statement, but uh-huh. to soften it and make it more inclusive, they'll actually turn it into a question. Oh. Like, he's a pretty good looking guy, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, and, and it's so funny because they're not... It's not a question. Yeah. It's just like then you're part. So I, those things, I'm, I'm with you. I love that sort of stuff. You pick up on it. And I think that actually it's a fine line between being a good listener slash good talker and then like a con artist. Because when you start talking back to people the way they talk to you, I'm sure that they, they, they drop their guard and then they become more inviting. It's a good. That's, that's an interesting point. I've always called myself a chameleon, but con <laughs> artist could work too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, there's different connotation. There. It's an emotional uh, hijacker, I guess. I'm like, yeah. I, I'm going to make you feel real comfortable. I'm not going to do anything crazy with the power. But would you agree that Jews talk a lot as a people? Yeah, storytelling. I, I've thought about this. Storytelling is part of Jewish nature. It's kind of embedded. You know, we uh, the, the whole tradition, like the Torah, is mm-hmm. an epic story. And yeah. I don't think that it's... I mean... Like, why are so many Jewish people in showbiz? Yeah, know, and that's in the a great question. Storytelling positions, right? And one of the arguments is it developed out of, there weren't that many jobs that were open for Jews at a time when there was a lot of anti-Semitism and, and restrictions. And so yeah. they gravitated to things like Hollywood, where they could kind of start on the ground floor or Broadway and, and then make the scene and create the scene. But while that's true, obviously, I've always felt that like, as a stereotype like because there are some introverted jews of course who don't like to tell stories there's tons but there's just something about being jewish that there is a i mean you know like it's embedded like in the shema right like a prayer that a lot of people know and you shall teach your children a huge part in fact there's like the written law and the oral law that go kind of hand in hand like Uh the, the oral component is is in the 
it's just in the tradition and over three, 4,000 years like that, that develops. And I think that's why you get a lot of Jewish people who are drawn to performance storytelling type professions for sure. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, uh, I think sadly we've, we've had to learn how to preserve our stories orally. Like there's a, obviously a benefit to uh, being a good storyteller, telling vivid stories when you think that perhaps your written stories could get destroyed. Like maybe that is part of it, that oral storytelling is key to preserving the culture a little bit. Um, I also think that like Yiddish is a very, Yiddish is an inherently comedic language. So I think that's also why Jews are funny or at least flock to comedy. So my Baba was a Yiddish teacher. Um, Yeah. yeah, So like, you know, because teaching Hebrew in day school really only became like the way after 1948 in Israel and the official language, right? But in the yeah. 50s and 60s, in places like the north end of Winnipeg, which were very concentrated with a lot of Jewish people, some kids went to study Hebrew, but a lot of kids still went to the Yiddish school. My, my Baba was a Yiddish teacher. And to this day, she still does Yiddish translations and things like that. She's a bit of an expert. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Yiddish going around. And I'm with you. It just sounds, it's so funny, side note, how Yiddish draws so much from German, right? Like yeah. the, le- the letters are, are Hebrew, but the, the biggest influence on Yiddish is not Hebrew, but it's German. Sure, and yet sure. German is perceived as being this very harsh, yeah. unfunny, yeah. serious language. And yeah. yet Yiddish is incredibly close to German. And yet yeah. it's just like ridiculous and preposterous, right? Yeah. I have this whole bit that I like to do about all of the English words that sound like Yiddish words. Ooh, give me an example. Far-fetched. <laughs> yeah, yeah, when you combine don't it. Listen, don't listen to that guy. His stories are so far-fetched. It's very good, yes. That building, that gross building, they're tearing it down. It's so derelict, you know? Like, <laughs> so yeah, I'm with you. It's, and, 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 um, and then you get the laugh. And, and, uh, and I think that's another part of it too, is that, you know, unpacking this, I think the Jews, love joy communal joy uh-huh. and right because so much of our celebration and even the way we pray it's it's almost exclusively communal we 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 us 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 uh-huh. and when you get laughs and when you get like this communal kind of feeling that comes from and reactions that come from storytelling yeah i think that that just feeds the beast and you just want to keep doing it and doing it and doing it right yeah. like yeah. i mean there's also within yiddish there's a lot of like similes and metaphors that are just built in that are just like part of the expressions which would also make a lot of sense speaking of joy though i want have you do you remember your first christian wedding if you've been to a christian wedding well i've kind of done i've been doing weddings as an officiant for for a decade for 10 years i've done over 100 weddings okay and long before i became a rabbi i wasn't so my history is that I got a summer job. It was supposed to be a summer job working at my synagogue where I had my bar mitzvah mm-hmm. in Winnipeg, Congregation Sherid Zedek, when I was 19 as a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah teacher and Torah reader, mm-hmm. Saturday mornings, holidays. And then I had that job all through my first university degree. When I lived in Halifax, I worked at synagogues there. When I was a radio host for six years, I had this side job. And then eventually I decided to pursue rabbinical training, become a rabbi, and then work at the synagogue full time. But it was always in the background. But long before I became a rabbi, I was doing weddings. So in 2011, I did my first wedding. And and because I wasn't bound to any rules, mm-hmm. I did. I started doing interfaith weddings, yeah. which I loved and still do. And then I kind of, 
you get into the wedding industry, you meet wedding planners and things like that. And next thing you know, you're getting phone calls from non-Jews to do their ceremonies. So I've never, I would never say I've done a Christian wedding because I have a few rules. Like I don't invoke Jesus and I don't do that sort of thing because it's not me. That would be inauthentic and disingenuous and wrong. But I remember really good friends of ours got married in Regina at, and it was a Catholic wedding. And there was like, I was told it was an abbreviated mass. Well, good gracious. Like if, if that was the abbreviated mass, do yeah. not sign me up for the unabbreviated mass because like, yeah. and they just, there was a lot, it was a lot of like, I didn't really understand what was going on. Why isn't anyone really explaining what's going on? It was it was not really jiving with my philosophy. I don't know if that's where yeah. you're going with your question. Well, I mean, honestly, like the Catholics are the the sort of the Jews of the Christian world. So like they're a little bit more, they've got a bit more, I don't know, something, chutzpah, gravitas, whatever you want to call it. My first wasp wedding though, was just the most joy. It, it was probably not joyless from like a, just a, a, a if you had a control group, uh, if you just averaged out all the weddings in the world, but I'd only been to Jewish weddings, bar mitzvahs, whatever. I'd only been to Jewish events and I couldn't believe how boring it was. Like no offense, but offense fully intended. It was just bland. There was very little uh, collective, like, how would I put it? I guess uh, rituals, things that everyone knows to do together. Like, like the, you know, uh, whatever, like breaking the glass, you know, um, the horror, whatever, whatever it is, that just was boring. Mm. Um, and I, not to say that other people are joyless, but I did go to a very Christian school and my Christian friends, uh, families, I, I always felt very uncomfortable at their homes because I felt like I had to temper down my natural, hmm. whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, that's, I mean, I, I, there's no question to me that in my experience, Jewish people, there, there's definitely a lot of a lot of joy. There, there, yeah. people are not there. Are, they, we seek out reasons to laugh, smile, celebrate. That was one of the things. Like, um, my my wife converted to Judaism. Her family, they are they are not Jewish, but especially early on when we were meeting, we've been together for for fourteen, going on fifteen years now. And I remember at the beginning thinking, just in a lot of the family dynamics, yeah, I felt. I was coming for my first Christmas and yet I felt very comfortable and very at home because it was a big, loud, boisterous, storytelling, laughing, joyful family. And I remember saying things just like, (laughs) I know all the women in here are six feet tall and blonde, but you're all (laughs) Jews, right? You're all Jews. (laughs) That is the best of both worlds. Is it not? (laughs) Six foot tall blondes who act like Jews. Well, that's my, that's I mean, like my mother-in-law, for. like my mother-in-law is, uh, she, she, she has that stereotypical un-Jewish look. Like yeah. whenever my in-laws would come to the synagogue for a couple of events, everybody notices when they walk in. Right. Um, okay. So let's just, I want to talk about a bit more about your history. So you were working in radio and in tandem, you were, uh, still going to the synagogue that you got bar mitzvah at. Yeah. And then something pushed you over to pursuing the Jewish thing a little more full-time. Right. Maybe not one thing. Maybe it was a, a, a complicated weaving of stories. But <laughs> if you could explain it uh, yeah, to me, sure. I love that. Before I got my job when I was 19 as a Torah reader, bar mitzvah teacher, I was never a synagogue attendee. We only ever went as a family for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say that I was drawn to it because I didn't, I didn't do it. But I, I, I always enjoyed it. I, mean, I, I love the music. Yep. Um, I fancy myself a bit of a 
semi-pro musician to play the piano I sing a little bit and and love music been a big, big music lover there's a lot of music in the synagogue world so i was always drawn to that of course i had a lot of exposure when i was 12 for that year leading up to when i was 13 in my bar mitzvah mm-hmm. i had a good relationship with my teacher and with the cantor and and so i always kind of was fascinated by those sorts of things and i had an aptitude for torah reading which is a really specific oh. skill right so that's kind of how i ended up in the job in the first place so i always enjoyed my time there but that was kind of where it ended. And then and then I got this job offer and things worked in my life where I was able to do this job and go to university and still have a schedule. While well, my friends, you know, my best friends were working at McDonald's and Subway and making minimum wage. And here I had a, a different kind of thing. And so that got me on yeah. this path where I had this synagogue job mm-hmm. that was always kind of a constant in my life, but it was never my main focus. I would say my main focus was my university degree and then my journalism degree and then my radio career. But all the while it was going on in the background. And when you do something like that for that long, like by the time I became a rabbi or by the time I decided to retire from the radio at 31 years old and pursue studying to be a rabbi, I had worked in the synagogue part time, sort of full time Uh for 12 years. Yeah. You know, a lot of growing up. Like when I started, I just 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 recently retired, I guess, as a pulpit rabbi. And one of my lines to people was when I started at the synagogue, I was living in my parents' house and couldn't grow a beard. And now I have my own house, a wife, two kids, and I'm starting to find gray hairs in my beard. And the synagogue spanned that whole thing. So to get to your your question, like I'd been on the, I was on the radio, I was working in sports radio for TSN. And sometimes we would get into these really great conversations and I'm a sport, I've got passion for sports as well, but they weren't at least in comparison to what I was doing more and more at the synagogue as I was doing weddings and it really kind of trying to help reshape the way we were doing services. And it just felt like that work was hitting me in my, I don't know, my soul, my heart as being a little bit more, having a little bit more deeper meaning. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't want to trivialize what I did because I loved it. And I knew that, and and I learned that as a a radio host, Uh you can become part of people's routines in a very powerful way. The number of times people would say to me, your voice is the first voice I hear in my bedside table alarm when I wake up, or I listen to you in the shower, in the car. Like that's a very intimate thing. And I, I never took that for granted, but uh-huh. I, I couldn't help but feeling like in the summer, spring, summer of 2016, uh-huh. when I made the switch, when I left radio, I was starting to feel like it wasn't doing enough for me. Yeah. And there were a couple of stories because I was a morning show host. Every once in a while, if there was a big news story, we would have this discussion like it's a sports show. It's a niche market. How far into if there's a big political story or if there's a natural disaster or right. Do you mention this? Like we're obviously not going to shift it. We kind of decided you have to mention things going on because people were, are counting on you for information if they listen yeah. to you. Right. And so there were a couple of events that were happening five years ago around that time that I was then announcing on the air yeah. and they really were making, my reaction was, I was like, we're sitting here debating for half an hour, the Winnipeg Jets defense pairings, Yeah. who should be playing with whom on the left side and the right side. And meanwhile, I'm reading this story uh-huh. about this horrifying nightclub shooting in Orlando, Florida, where right. all these young people, many of them LGBT, like are, are, are killed and and just these stories about these kids texting their mothers from the bathroom hiding out and just worried that they're about to die and it just like it destroyed me like I just felt 
I felt so sick on different levels, but one of the levels was that I was, I felt like this weird pull, like I wasn't doing enough to feel like I was having meaning in my work and, and what I was doing. Because, and I think the reason was if I had only just been doing the radio, uh-huh. I wouldn't have had anything else in my life at the same time to compare where I felt like I was. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Work. Yeah. But because I was simultaneously a sports radio host by day. Yeah. Matt Libel, TSN 1290, oh. but um, like a, um, an assistant canter, teacher, wedding officiant, connecting. Like when you connect with a 12-year-old, 13-year-old student and work with them for a year of lessons up yeah. to their bar mitzvah and see their growth yeah. as like a human being, or you work with a couple and then stand with them under the chuppah on their wedding day, yeah. like right there with them and pronounce them husband and wife, yeah. that, that was just... That gave me the feeling that I wasn't getting in the radio and that I think I was aware of in that moment, particularly with that shooting at that nightclub in Orlando. And and then on top of it, there was an opportunity because the senior rabbi at the synagogue at, at Sherrod Zedek had announced he was looking at retiring in a couple of years. The cantor, who my, my good pal and partner, had found this online rabbinical school where we could study together with a rabbi out of New York and continue to work. And then it was just like everything came together yeah. at the perfect time to say, okay, I'm going to leave the radio behind, uh-huh. retire, I'm going to study. And then July 2017, so like four years ago, almost to the day, we yeah. got our smicha, our ordination, and we've been rabbis ever since. So yeah, it's not your typical journey, but it was, uh, it was the one for me. That's how I got here. It makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, I think, firstly, it's interesting that you were 31. I'm 31 right now, mm-hmm. this very moment. Mm-hmm. And there, in the past two, two, three years, I w- would say that I've been pushed towards a little bit more of like a, maybe a search for meaning or just, um, I don't know, uh, my world's felt a little bit small and I'd like to make it bigger. Um, and I think you seem like a, a pretty social person, like you like people. And radio is social in the sense of what you said, which is that you're, you are part of people's lives and routines, but it sort of happens in a vacuum for you. Um, and like maybe after the fact, people can come up to you and say, you know, I, I know who you are, big fan, you're part of my life. But when it doesn't compare to when you're working with people uh, and there's some feedback, I'd imagine. You touched on something right there, Laura, that is exactly right. So in addition to all those other things that I would talk about, what I had in my life, Five days a week in the morning, I was in a, a t- I was in a, a room with no windows and my two co-hosts, yeah. and we were talking mass media to all these people listening. Yeah, and yet we couldn't see any of them. Yeah, right. I always talk about when you're on the radio and you tr- and you make a joke. One of the things about making a joke is the laughter that follows it. Right. Yeah. Jerry Seinfeld always talks about. I'm sure you 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 know you're a comedian if you hear the laugh and that just gives you this feeling, right? Well, on the radio, you could say something like downright hilarious, mm-hmm. but your co-host is the only one laughing, but maybe he doesn't laugh, but you don't know all these other people are laughing. You get no feedback mm-hmm. from your audience. So it is both simultaneous, it's simultaneously intimate in that you're in people's cars and you're in their bedrooms and you're in the shower with them. And yet they know you, you don't know them at all. You can't see them. It's a ve- it's very weird that it's so intimate and yet so one way. Yeah. In the synagogue, I could see everyone's faces. You know, I would be explaining. I started doing this thing that's a little bit innovative with the Torah reading on a Saturday morning service. So I was the Torah reader, but I was finding that people were very 
that it's hard to follow along in the Torah, Torah reading because it's very passive. You know, you're reading a book, people are chanting, you know, I used to hear people murmuring and whispering during the crowd. There's not a lot of participation the way you can in singing. So I started doing this thing, borrowing from the sports world, where I called it Torah play-by-play. And in between the Torah readings, I would break away from it and start like explaining what we were reading and things to look out for and making it trying to interact with people. And when I do a thing like when I was doing something like that, or you're doing a wedding, or you're even doing a a class for one student or a small group, it's a two-way relationship right it's it's not like radio it's not like tv it's much more like what you do where you're all in on the experience and and that's something that i've talked about a lot during the pandemic running services during the pandemic what we're missing because the kind of work that you're in that that you're in and that we're in as being rabbis and stuff like that seeing people's faces hearing their reactions it's it's infinitely better it's way, way way better and so the fact that I would be a morning show host by day. And then this rabbi on Saturday mornings, I was finding it as a performer yeah. to be more validating and fulfilling on Saturdays. Yeah. And, in the morning. and that was something that I never thought about my years in school, never thought about for years on the radio that I was missing. But yeah, I mean, not being able to see people's faces, that's the price for having the ability to reach such a huge audience. Uh-huh. But I, I prefer being able to connect with the audience. And so the the, the rabbi world worked for, for me for that too, for sure. Yeah, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I have refused to do Zoom shows because, I mean, you can see people, but often they sometimes turn their cameras off. Um, you have to curate the audience if you want them to leave their mics on. So often they're off. And the whole experience to me, it's, it's missing the dynamic element that I actually like about performing and it really felt to me it reminded me of like like if a race car driver couldn't drive race cars for whatever reason and so instead he just like walked around his kitchen island just like making race car sounds it's just it's it it loses so much of what you're actually doing and it just is like this weird impression almost um anyways that's just a a tangent about how I miss uh in-person comedy which is coming back yeah I have to ask well we have uh, some time left what so your uh the shul that you came up in that you grew up in was a conservative shul yep in name you, yeah in name. in name okay do you they think haven't been, what, about 15 years ago they broke away from the conservative movement okay in terms of like i guess i don't know a lot about this but like synagogues pay dues into a kind of a bigger movement and then they can help with placing rabbis or you follow kind of the the, the issue that was happening in the early 2000s there was that our synagogue was was far more left-leaning with things that they wanted to do than the movement was and we're talking talking like same-sex marriages creating a special section of our cemetery that's an interfaith cemetery where interfaith couples could be buried bringing in live music on friday nights and saturday mornings we were just shared that i say in name has been conservative but it's got a lot of it's 130 plus years old it's got a lot of roots in kind of like classic german reform Okay. from Europe. And so I think it has always been a liberal congregation. It's always been boundary pushing. And there was a period of time where a couple of rabbis steered the, the shul back towards more of the, the right of center and the more like conservative, but at least in its history. And I think in practice for the majority of congregants, it's always been more liberal, progressive boundary pushing like me. I think like I, I love tradition, but I recognize that it does not hit my contemporaries or future generations and that in the name of 
perpetuating Judaism and values and what Judaism stands for, you have to try and meet your crew. Like when I was on the sports radio, my, my truest passion was baseball, but I live in Winnipeg and people want to hear 98% hockey. So you don't talk 98% baseball because you like it. You talk 98% hockey because they like it. Yeah. And I see Judaism is a very similar sort of thing. So you've got to be liberal and progressive if the if your demographic is liberal and progressive. Okay. It, what would a prototypical conservative shul look like or a prototypical conservative rabbi? Like what are the tenets of conservatism? Yeah, I think I think that it's like recognize i think that there it's trying to be as traditional as observant as possible and, and trying to find ways to be modern you know like the, the way it was always explained to me was in an orthodox synagogue you do not drive on shabbat right okay. they would you would it's better not to go to synagogue if you have to drive than to drive okay. conservative synagogue the, the the idea was you can drive to go to synagogue but you just drive to go to synagogue you don't then get in your car afterwards and go to the bowling alley or the mall or whatever like that but if 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 driving is preventing you from going to synagogue you drive to go to synagogue so little allowances like that but feeling and and certainly conservative synagogues for the most part are egalitarian men and women sitting together Uh and not split seating like an orthodox synagogue and women participating on the bima in every way that men can which are for me are are kind of i don't want to say obvious but they feel like obvious things for me Uh, but a conservative synagogue is, and I don't know how many conservative synagogues are still true because I don't think that, I think that they're, I think that that's the demographic or that's the movement that's that's got the most trouble, right? Because they're not Orthodox. Yeah. And they're not as extreme, if we can use that word as reform. Yeah. Trying to like kind of hold the middle ground. But these days, the middle often in all kinds of different jobs and, and whatever disappears. Like people want, you know, extreme uh, observance or they want ex- extreme liberal and, and conservative kind of feels sort of caught in the middle. So I feel like a, conser- a classical conservative synagogue, you know, it's still a three hour service on Saturday, very intense, like a very traditional Torah reading. It's very long. It's, it's, it's like the, the shared Zedek of the nineties that I grew up in where my bar mitzvah was. Yeah. Whereas like um, a reform synagogue, for example, they'll, inf- they'll the, more of the, um, the wait is on Friday night and using more English and changing okay. up the tunes and using a lot of music. Like I think a traditional conservative synagogue, you won't have a piano playing live or a live band. You maybe have a choir, but it'll right. be all a cappella, right? Like it's a lot of trying to conserve yes. the old the old stuff. But it's uh it's a hard, it's very, very hard, I think. It's and I didn't go to the seminary or go up in the conservative like like a, to become a rabbi like that, right? So yeah. I'm not trying to talk out of turn or, or as they say, but that's kind of my perception. Yeah. I mean, so it's somewhat losing the, the delineations between reform and conservative are much here than they used I think, to. I think so. I think conservative synagogues are finding, I think it all comes down to like what people want. You know, if you're going to yeah. ask people to pay membership dues or, or have their life cycle events at a synagogue, they want a synagogue that reflects them. And yeah. um, just in my experience, like the people, who I grew up with and the people who are in the, in the congregation that I, you know, was working with, I don't, I don't mean it in any kind of negative way, but I just don't see them being as, I just don't see them being like that. I see them being more liberal, more modern, but I find that names are very touchy. And the fact that that synagogue has been called, Sherzedek has been a conservative synagogue for so long, the idea of changing it, even if 
the new name is more reflective. Yeah. Changing the name feels like you're messing with something sacred. Yeah. And people get touchy about that. So no one, we never really, we never really touched it. We never really went there. So in your identity as a rabbi, is conservatism an integral part of it or not necessarily? No, no. I'm uh, my, my whole philosophy is to understand the context. You know, I think like the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. I'm yeah. not a letter of the law person. I will never do anything in life really without unpacking it and finding out the reason why. Yeah. Like to me, the best way to reframe things that are old in hopes of making them relevant today. And that's what a lot of work as a rabbi is, is to be like, okay, why? Why do we do this? Why is it important? And then once you establish the why, if there's a new way of achieving that why, why wouldn't you do that, right? Like to me, if the whole idea behind like Passover, for example, is to take a week out of your life and, you know, like not eat bread or something like that. And and to try and think about freedom and to try and think about our ancestors and something that's thousands of years old. That's great. If someone's like packaging up everything, looking for uh, with a feather for like little crumbs, burning your chametz on the street, selling it to somebody. For some people that has meaning. But if that doesn't have meaning for you, I I don't think it's integral to part of the Passover experience. Do do you know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. I'm just uh, unfortunately we are out of time. I know. Um, but it was so nice chatting with you thank and you. learning from you. And uh, sorry, I have to cut you off, but thank you for doing this. No, uh, it's been a pleasure and i uh, love to chat with you again somewhere down the line. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode of Won't You Be My Rabbi. There are five episodes in this miniseries. You can hear them all at thecjn.ca slash b-my-rabbi. This show is edited and produced by Michael Freeman. Our music is by The Underscore Orchestra. I'm comedian Laura Lebo. You can check out my content on YouTube or follow me on Instagram at Laura Lebo to hear about upcoming shows. Bye.